I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Katie Kerr is the program manager for the inaugural season of the Nation's Center of New Musicals at Theatre Aquarius. Matthew Sotolak has been a music director at Canada's Wonderland and a keyboard player at Drayton Entertainment and Theatre Aquarius. They joined me to talk about Christmases, a new holiday musical that they wrote together, which you can see at the Winter Garden Theatre in Toronto from December 5th to 31st. Here's our conversation. The show is uh, Christmases. That's correct. Um, now, as a, as a self-avowed Christmas nerd, my favorite season all, uh, all of all of the seasons, I I love all things all things Christmas. Before we get into what this show is about, can you each tell me what your Christmas like? How was your relationship to Christmas like? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's a story. There's a story there. Um, well, Katie and I actually met. Uh, during the Christmas holiday season, um, we were kind of ships passing in the night for a little while. We met first doing Elf the Musical, and it wasn't until the second time that we were doing it together. Katie was uh, on stage playing Jovi, and I was in the band playing the keyboard. And it wasn't until the second time that we had done uh, the show that we were, you know... Back-to-back years. Back-to-back years. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That we were really able to, you know, start our relationship. But it really was the background uh, of... Of, of us, you know, becoming a couple. Yeah. And I think for both of us, Christmas, uh, separate and apart from meeting, which kind of just is the cherry on top, um, like Christmas has always been my favorite season across the board. Um, it was always a really big uh, event in my house. It still is. Um, you know, my mom is definitely the queen of stocking stuffers. Like those things defy gravity. They should not be able to hang. They have... They're like the rocket clown car that just like stuff just keeps coming out of them. So um, I I definitely have a uh, a special place for Christmas in my heart, right from my childhood all the way uh, to to meeting Matt. Just so happened to be at Christmas, so it really is the most magical holiday in in my experience. <laughs> and Matt, let me guess, you hate you hate the season, right? <laughs> no, I love it. I just, I'm really good at. Uh, Imagine. I'm, I know, yeah. It's all been a con. No, I'm really good at. Uh, I don't know. I think I, I'm one of those people who, once the calendar really turns to December, is when I'm, I'm like really like, okay, it's Christmas time. I'm not like a Halloween over, switch everything over right away. But man, when I'm, when I'm in it, I'm, I'm, I'm in it. Like I'm, I'm watching. Uh, what's it called? Um, it's a Wonderful Life, Christmas right. Eve, crying. You know. Like, <laughs> I'm in it, so absolutely, sir. So, as far as the show goes, Christmas is what is what what is the show about? Tell me, uh, uh, the 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 what's the premise? Tell me everything. The show is, uh, you know, it's sort of think the Santa Claus meets the Sound of Music. It's got sort of all those elements of your favorite Christmas movie, but a lot of the. 
uh, exciting sort of sweeping grandness of sort of classical musical theater. So in our story, uh, we have a widower named Ben. He's got three kids, uh, a teenage daughter and two twins named Samuel and Samantha. And they are going to their family cottage. uh, Sorry, they're going to their family cabin for one last Christmas. Ben has decided he's going to try and sell it. But his brother still runs it. So he's going to go there to try to convince him to sell. Uh, And he decides to bring along his socialite girlfriend, who the twins do not uh, get along with. And when they find a ring in his suitcase, they think all hope is lost. And so they forego all of their Christmas presents and write to Santa to help intervene to stop their dad from proposing to this woman. So they go to the lodge and uh, as luck would have it, uh, there is a woman who just happens to work there who loves Christmas and seems to be the perfect fit for their dad. And so we've got sort of a parent trap love triangle with the kids and 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 their dad and a whole lot of family holiday fun along the way. Yeah, it really is, you know, kind of a, in terms of a musical, it's a musical structure most akin to that of a musical comedy, um, but it really walks in modern clothing. And the music reflects that as well. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it checks all of the all of the boxes for both like a musical and a Christmas story. So sounds perfect. Um, how did you decide to write this show? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, we decided we wanted to write when we started dating and... Uh, It was something neither of us had ever done collaboratively. It's something we'd each done sort of on our own in our own path. Um, And mine was much more lyrical based and sort of, you know, very simple, not a lot of orchestrations. And Matt would write a lot of music without any words. And Mm -hmm. so when we were sort of um, starting to date and sort of, you know, COVID happened. And so we were playing around with showing each other some uh, things that we had written and things we'd worked on. Um, We decided to sort of blend our talents together and take a stab at at writing something collaboratively. Yeah. Uh, and so we started uh, initially not with a Christmas, uh, this Christmas show, um, but we, we started with just some exercises, taking um, works that already existed and finding a moment in a novel or in a movie that we could turn into a song mm-hmm. and sort of experiment with uh, a world that had already been built and working within those parameters and just uh, taking a moment in that uh, novel or that movie and 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 making bringing it to life through music and then when we did that a few times uh we started to get a lot more comfortable and sort of breaking out into a world where we decided we would build our own sort of universe and and uh not taking from any existing ip Mm -hmm. and just write it sort of from the ground up um and because it was during covid uh something that was really important and really obviously lacking in that first year was that sort of human connection what our traditions what our family means to us and how it has sort of shaped our lives. Mm-hmm. And that really became an undercurrent in the show uh, that that really sort of permeates almost more than, you know, the Christmas aspect of it. It's really more about the traditions and the times that bring us together rather than, you know, the Christmas tree and Santa Claus in particular, just really looking at those sort of pivotal moments in our lives when when we all come together and and what happens when we when we don't. Mm-hmm. And the reason also is that in there we in terms of a Christmas musical, there's you know there's there's certainly many many musicals, but there aren't that many that are Christmas musicals. You, know, you have your White Christmases, um, you know, your Holiday Inns, um, and shows that have moments of Christmas in them, like Annie. Um, so we, we recognize that you know in the canon, there isn't that many Christmas musicals. Never mind modern Christmas musicals. Never mind. Never mind Canadian <laughs> Christmas musicals. So we thought, well, this really. Not that it hasn't been done, but th- there seems to be an opportunity here and people who are interested in this type of content. So let's give it a go. Well, there's also, I mean, in addition to all of that, there's, I mean, there's the never ending productions of A Christmas Carol that seem to happen every year, which some may be musicals. I've seen musical versions of that, but there, there's not original uh, uh, Christmas musicals. Um, and there is a, I think that that there is a hunger for the next Christmas tradition, right? Like, what is the thing that I'm going to see this year that it's going to be a thing that I want to see next year, you know? Um, and any time a new Christmas thing comes along, it, it has the potential to be that thing. 
that we do next year too and the year after that you know is that something you've considered yeah. for this show yeah i mean we yeah. we we haven't set out to write something that you know stays in toronto and and is a staple in yeah. one location every year mm-hmm. um but definitely something that this holiday season in particular people come to and remember and enjoy mm-hmm. and whether or not the show happens again in toronto or you know at other regional theaters or other theaters across the country that um, people will recognize it and seek it out because of the, the memories that were created this year and the experience that they had this year. And what's great about theater is that, you know, the, the final collaborator is the audience. So it really isn't up to us um, <laughs> as much as we might hope or whatnot that it might be a Christmas tradition for uh it really is up to the audiences telling us that they would like to come see it multiple times. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. So. There is also the fact that the there's there's no panto uh, in Toronto this year. That that tradition uh, ended last year with the big the the, the final production uh, 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 there. Um, and this sort of like presents a, a, an opportunity for first off that theater is now available for this sort of show, but also um, another uh, an opportunity for a family. Uh, 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 a show for a family to go to because I think a lot of families introduce their children to theater during Christmas, whether it's the panto or something else. Um, mm-hmm. Out of curiosity, um, when you were younger, each of you, did you get taken to theater at Christmas? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Regional theater. I'm from Hamilton. So Theater Aquarius was my you know regional theater. I like to say I grew up there. Um, so certainly it was definitely a t- something I was introduced to mm-hmm. many times. I um, my, I grew up in Windsor, so we're right across from Detroit. So uh, when I was young, probably about eight, uh, my mom took me to see the Rockettes. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, sort of was, is the be all and end all of Christmas spectacle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was fortunate enough, uh, my parents were very supportive of the arts. And I was in a lot of community theater when I was growing up. So the community theater in Windsor, Windsor Light Opera, and they run a, a Christmas show and a spring show. So I was in a lot of uh, theater around the holiday season where when I grew up, um, but also those those sort of classic movie Christmas musicals uh, are staples in our house for sure. Whether it's you know going going to live theater or or watching those movie musicals. Yeah, it's a tradition. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Speaking of of those old classic movies, musicals or not. You mentioned that as you were starting to work uh, on on creating a musical, that you found moments in some of those old old movies, those old stories, and created songs around them. What 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 were you looking at at that time? What were the shows or or stories that you were looking at that that you were that sort of formed the early versions of of songs that event that 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 became a show like this? Sure. Yeah. We we weren't looking specifically at Christmas when no. we started that experiment. No. Um, the groundwork was really, uh, we sat down and listed sort of 10 novels and 10 films that really had an impact on us mm-hmm. uh, as individuals and tried to find the pieces that cross-referenced if there was any books or movies that we had both seen or we had both, uh, you know, enjoyed in a, that us, really yeah. resonated in a way that that we felt could be useful in an exercise mm-hmm. like this. Um, so the, the, the major one we, we wrote a couple of songs for was extremely loud and incredibly close. Uh, I had read the novel in, in high school and, and then we sat and watched the film again together, um, and sort of watched it and, and picked out moments as we were watching it that, um, that would make for really great, um, musical storytelling. Mm -hmm. And, And, and And theater too, right? Dramaturgically, which could be adapted in a way that was interesting yeah. And taken the extra mile by yeah. yeah. And that that story in particular, um, it's very interesting. It jumps sort of perspective and it uh, it deals with a grandfather who doesn't speak. And so we were also kind of looking at how uh, creatively things like that could be presented on stage and mm-hmm. sort of multimedia use of of of, of storytelling yeah. outside of just music. So the, the North Star that really we pulled from that piece too um, was the theme of family. Because uh, as you said, he has a, a grandfather who there's communication, um, and a and a mother they lost their father. Yeah, so and, yeah, exactly. So that was kind of like, oh well, this theme of family is so ripe. There's so much to be, you know, gleaned, mined, extracted from it, and, and it's then, universal, right? Yeah, like it's, it's totally. a very 
um, it's a very broad topic that becomes very granular and very personal yeah. um, for each person as they uh, as they experience it. Everyone has a parent who you think though doesn't understand you. You know, it, it, these are very relatable things. Um, and then I think it was the holiday season was turning, mm -hmm. and it just all kind of uh, eclipsed in the right moment. Well, let's try and write a, a Christmas show about family. So you started to write this show, and it was during the pandemic that everything started to come together with this. Um, and I know that you 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 wrote the show in Matt's basement, in the the, the basement of Matt's okay. parents' house. And yeah. um, as far as like writing a show like this, writing a musical. Um, before you even get to production, what does that look like? Is it just sitting in the basement in front of a piano and just banging out stuff? Yeah. The hardest thing I would say in writing a musical is finding an answer that stands up when you ask the question, does this need to be a musical? That's the hardest thing. That's the most important thing you have to be able to answer. And it's a very tricky thing to answer alone um, having collaborators helps yeah. because you you have to justify that this needs to be a musical or you just have songs you like and you're trying to form them around some type of narrative structure. So that's the most important thing that a person or a creative team, I would say, should figure out. And I think we, we've, we've done our best to figure out. Yeah. We, um, we sat down, definitely Matt at the piano and myself with a whiteboard and sort of sketched a a roadmap of of the character's journey rather than looking at where does the show as a whole go um you know who's our main character what is their journey and how do they relate to the other characters that are involved and where do they intersect and um so we we really built it based around our characters and then looked at pivotal moments where there's conflict mm -hmm. um where you know someone has the upper hand or where yeah. the, that sort of like uh, rug is pulled out and who it happens to and when and how that structure in a two-act musical sort of flows. You know, what mm -hmm. what do you do right before the act break and how do you end the show? And how do we get there in a way that's satisfying that doesn't feel like fluff until the big moment? Yeah. And then also, uh, continue on what I said before too, that not only does this need to be a musical or does now, you have to answer that question, you know, 20 times. Does this moment need to be a song? Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, it's this constant game of, you know, like, does this make sense? Is it serving the plot? Is it serving the character? What's it telling to the audience? What is it not telling to the audience? Um, and it, it really is a game of collaboration. Music, musical theater writing composition is all about collaboration because it's such a beast. There's so many perspectives, audience perspective, characters, perspective, composers, that you have to kind of talk things out. And it comes mm -hmm. down to collaborators. And, you know, I'm lucky that mine is my roommate. Just your roommate. <laughs> and <in my> life. <laughs> Someone's in trouble. Um, <laughs> now, there that that you mentioned the, those important questions. You know, should the, how what's the what can this moment be a song? Should this moment be a song? That sort of thing. But the bigger question, the uh, 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 you know, does this need to be a musical? How do you find the answer to that question? Yeah, it is a long, laborious process. <laughs> And usually, it, it sounds cliche, but the, the the way you answer it is actually just by starting. Um, you know, trying some song sketches, trying to, as you mentioned, KDM, you know, mapping out the bones of the plot. And it, again, things will reveal itself to you about, oh, this isn't really working, or I'm forcing this, or I have to go back and rethink my structure. So it, it's just um, by 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 doing, you will either succeed or fail, as with most <laughs> most things in life. But um, I, I would say that the more you do it, the more your instincts become attuned to yeah. what might be fertile ground. They'll cut you off earlier yeah. or really tell you like, yes, there, there's there's room to explore here. Because really, when you look at music and dance, they are mm -hmm. heightened versions of reality, yeah. heightened emotion. Um, and and so there are certain stories that just that just don't call for that. And and you can you can tell when you see them that like didn't really need to be a song or this yeah. one decision uh maybe didn't need to be five minutes mm -hmm. um so it's it's really trying to catch people catch characters in a moment of conflict or in a moment of discovery and uh keeping the the thoughts engaged and mm -hmm. keeping the audience engaged uh to to want to follow that thought process and that journey for each of those characters it's a difference between a show and a, a concert 
yeah. that point, right? What's the dramatic driving force? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that dramatic through line, of course, is one of the most important things things to find. Um, I imagine as you were creating this show that you wrote songs that you eventually uh, had to say goodbye to. Um, are there songs that you really loved that you that you uh, uh, had to throw away? Yeah, absolutely. From, from a pr- production, it's interesting because for this, we're you know wearing the hats of the creative team, but also the producers. So um, there's no producer saying we're not doing that because it's too expensive. We're having that conversation ourselves. So one really good example of that from our show was a song called um, "Take Care of Yourself." Um, which was sung by our, I guess we call her our villain type character. She's not really a villain. No, she's just she's just very opportunistic. Um, <laughs> the way a Captain Hook might be opportunistic. Uh, um, uh, and she had a song called "Take Care of Yourself." Really fun number, you know, kind of taking the cliche Instagram kind of you know sometimes mindfulness wellness quotes and kind of flipping them on their head about what what's the point between taking care of yourself could actually become selfishness. And uh, how do we lie about ourselves, lie to ourselves about it? Mm-hmm. The number took place in a spa, <laughs> which <laughs> involved the whole set, involved a whole bunch of props and, you know, um, uh, special effects. Yeah. And we don't have an opportunity in a stage version to ever come back to that location. Yeah. And when you're talking about building sets and uh, costume pieces and everything uh, for something like film, which, you know, for for a section of this journey mm-hmm. when COVID was happening, um Film was the only industry that was doing any, you know, having any productions go through. So uh, we sort of put our theatrical script on hold and looked at a more sort of conventional Mm -hmm. film script. And that song really serves a great uh, purpose uh, or has a really great life on camera, especially. Um, But when it comes to the logistics of an onstage musical with, uh, you know, set dressing and costumes and everything else, um, the more you can come back to the same location or avoid like a mm-hmm. single location area, especially something that would be as complex as a spa with, you know, different treatment areas and different things happening. Uh, it's it's harder as a producer to justify yeah. the expense for a single scene. And so we we also realized it was um, icing. It, it was icing on a cookie for this character. Yeah, it was. I think people will walk away with this character of Vicky as their favorite character. Um, <laughs> and she she literally just had too much to do in the show. It, it, it was becoming her show because um, I think it was probably the third song she had. Yeah. Um, and we're like, well, you know what? This is something we can afford to let go of. And, and really just kind of cover in dialogue and other things. It yeah. was more just a fun sort of transition um, you know, spa scene that works great on film, but but not necessarily in the in the stage version. You mentioned the the character sort of uh, threatening to take over this show, which is often the problem with a really juicy character, right? Like, I think there's lots of shows that sort of have that character that you could just keep giving stuff to, but they're not actually the main character, and so you have as much as it is fun to write them, it's not it's not their show, and you have to sort of like hold yourself back. Was it difficult to hold yourself back with this character? Yeah, yeah Vicky's fun. She's like, yeah. it's very, you know, Corella DeVille meets Ursula, like just sort of a, a boss, unapologetically mm-hmm. sort of herself uh, to a fault, of course. But um, you totally she, see her point of view. You almost root for her, too. Yeah, it's yeah. hard. It's 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 hard to hate her, mm-hmm. uh, even though she is unlikable. It's hard to hate her. And uh, who who has the joy of playing that role? Who is the the, the performer? Because I want to get into the cast of this show as well. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So it is a new member to our company, yeah. uh, Olivia Sinclair Brisbane. She is just coming off of a run in Stratford doing Rent, and uh, we are so thrilled to have her. We did a short uh, sort of like teaser trailer with her, and we can't wait to, to get in the room and and really let her Vicky sort of unleash. Oh, yeah. oh, she's a powerhouse and the rising star yeah. um, in, in the Canadian theater scene, absolutely. Tell me about the rest of the cast that you've assembled for this show. Yeah. Where our show is is led in the role of Ben Chris by a gentleman named Liam Tobin, um, very accomplished Canadian musical theater performer who has made quite a wave um, on Broadway and across North America, leading the Book of Mormon national tour. 
Um, he was also in um, Beautiful, the Carol King musical. Who else do we have? Uh, and alongside him playing Holly is uh, Danielle Wade, who, uh, you know, has uh, is a Canadian staple winning the uh, Dorothy Over the Rainbow show and going on to do uh, The Wizard of Oz across Canada and, and then starring in Mean Girls on Broadway. So mm-hmm. our two leads are both Canadian, but have both had success on both sides of the border. Yeah. And, uh, and we're so lucky to have them leading this company. But, you know, on top of the two of them, we have just a, a plethora of <laughs> incredibly talented people yeah. that it, it seems almost unfair. We've got 17 all Canadian cast members plus two swings and an extra set of kids. Uh, so it's it's a big company. Yeah. Um, other names that that would jump out that have been sort of in the especially the Toronto theater scene: mm-hmm. Kale Penny, AJ Bridell, uh, Sarah Strange. Henry Firmston, like mm-hmm. a- Andrew Broderick. Yeah. It, it really is uh, an incredibly talented, well-rounded cast. Mm-hmm. And we also have the opportunity for four uh, young people to make their sort of stage debuts alongside this incredibly accomplished yeah. company. A lot of them, I think some of the kids, you know, they've done, you know, kids chorus parts. Everybody starts somewhere. Um, but I think for some of them, it is their chance to really step into a role and not just a role that's, you know, been done before that they can you know just kind of mimic those who come before that they actually get the chance to create from, it. from a young age at 10 years old to make a part their own um which doesn't happen to an actor very often yeah. at all no yeah. absolutely in in, in in canadian theater we tend to uh take roles that have been created by somebody else um so it's a a yeah. really rare opportunity to to create a character and to be the first person to perform it um, you mentioned being the producer, so you've written this show, you're producing the show. Um, what does uh, writing and producing a musical look like in Canada right now? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that we, we've we looked a lot at, I know you said in Canada, but we've looked a lot at who's done before, you know, the Hal Princes, the, um, the Rogers and Hammerstein that, you know, they... They were producers of their shows. And they were also involved creatively. Um, <clears throat> in Canada, there really does seem to be a hunger for new content. Um, actually, you could maybe speak to some of that. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot of really amazing programs, um, uh, sp- specifically in Ontario. Um, the National Center for New Musicals at Theatre Aquarius is is having its like inaugural season this year, mm-hmm. uh, and I have the opportunity to be the program uh, manager for that. So it's been really exciting to see the intake and the um, the the like you said hunger mm-hmm. for uh, development and and opportunities to look at uh, and and to continue to further the process of of new works. Musical Stage Company has the Aubrey Dan Fund. Um, there's lots of programs, not only in Ontario, but across the country that that offer these opportunities, which are really uh, beneficial because it, it is a long process and a, and a financially cumbersome process to uh, not only be able to find the time to write in your daily life outside of your, you know, your regular work hours, mm-hmm. uh, which is something obviously being married and, and being in the same house uh, had definitely have it has its benefits. Sometimes mm-hmm. there can be like, we can't talk about the show right now, yeah. but it also just, it, it eliminates the need to say, do you have time? Can we talk? I have an idea. Scheduling uh, scheduling meetings, meetings yeah. uh, with partners that, that don't, um, have yeah. quite the proximity that yeah. we yeah. do. Um, but also, uh, the stage beyond yourselves where you need to get it in other people's bodies and, mm-hmm. and see it living outside of yourself. Uh, and that can be expensive if you don't, especially with a company. Uh, a lot of new works are very small companies mm-hmm. for mostly financial reasons, and you that know, dictates what's made. Workshops and and even um, you know premieres and productions. The smaller your cast, the cheaper it is to do. Um, so something like this show is definitely ambitious, yeah. and um, and I think it it can be daunting for for new writers to step into the space without the support of some of those programs uh through theater companies or the government you know there are grants Mm -hmm. but it it is definitely a long process and a process that we have found 
our personal connections within the industry mm-hmm. to be instrumental. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being able to uh, call up, you know, some of these people and and just ask them to have a look at the script or if they're available to do a reading or mm-hmm. even a Zoom call and and look at some music and have a sing through it and see what they think. Um, so so being in the industry has definitely been a, a benefit to us. I would say, you know, the gestational period of a musical to getting, you know, a full-fledged production is at least three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're at about three and a half, technically. Um, and, you know, that's just three years or so of making sure the, the script and score work. You know, that that's that's all well and good. But then after that, it has to actually materialize and translate onto stage in terms of, you know, set costume props, lighting, pardon me, and sound. So, you know, recognizing that we are new producers to this game, we knew that we had to assemble a production team around us who had experience had experience, and, you know, knew when to hold our hand uh, when we needed to or, or slap our wrist when we, when we didn't know what we were doing it in, in, in some specific realm. So we've been very blessed in terms of our collaborators who, you know, not only is it a gig to them, they, they're also passionate about new theater, which, you know, speaks back to that point. Yeah, there is a hunger for new content, I think, particularly um, post-pandemic as well. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly think, I certainly feel that, that desire for new for new content uh, and new Canadian theater, I think, as we um, leave, uh, as we get away from, from sitting in front of our televisions or computer screens uh, for three-odd years uh, watching video, um, the the experience of theater is something that is 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 really desirable, and it's a perfect time to to sort of people who maybe haven't been to the theater uh, uh, because they think it's one thing or another. Uh, it's a great time to get them in so they can actually realize what what theater and that experience is. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think that was a goal too for us um, with with sort of the Hallmarkian tones of our piece that it does offer that sort of comfort and nostalgia of being at home watching those those films and sort of the uh the na- the mathematical sort of nature of how those movies play out and and they're they you know they're very comforting you you sort of know what's going to happen mm-hmm. um and so taking that formula and making people feel like it's something they recognize mm-hmm. while offering them something that they don't get during that experience, which is uh, yeah. the spectacle of live song and dance, but also that sort of more communal uh, audience experience. Yeah. Most of the Hallmark movie watchers uh, are, are are doing it by themselves or with just their immediate family. Mm-hmm. So it is an opportunity to have a similar experience, yeah. but, but on sort of a grander scale. Yeah, like theater is kind of a, it's all living organism too, right? Like everyone in that room is breathing together, experiencing the exact same thing um, in a synchronized fashion, much like the Rockettes. Um. <laughs> and something that only exists once, right? Yeah. Like it, it varies night to night, uh, where something like, you know, your Hallmark movie, your Christmas movie is going to be the same thing every time. And while that is very comforting, mm-hmm. there is something very magical about um, seeing and, and really feeling the energy of a live performance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is it the the idea the the fact that the the production the 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 experience that you had in the theater that night will be different from the experience that somebody had the night before, the night after, or at any other point is 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 quite magical uh, uh, because something may happen that night that nobody else will ever see, and that's exciting yeah. too. Um, you mentioned uh, the fact that a lot of shows that get news a lot of new shows especially um suffer from the need financially to have a small cast and that 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 is is what keeps them small um and uh the financial aspect of that and uh, i i do think that that's one of the reasons why we don't see with some a few notable exceptions a lot of canadian musicals uh that that sort of like go on and 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 sort of like reach a full production and and go on. There's only, uh, you know, come from away, uh, the drowsy chaperone or two that I think of off the off the top of my head. And really, those may be the only ones that have. I remember when I was in theater school, there was a everybody was talking about this new Canadian musical about Napoleon, and nobody could understand why it was a new Canadian musical about Napoleon. But that's the last. That was the first time I heard about a Canadian musical. And then since then, we've had some other ones. Um, the challenge, though, of 
of of having a larger cast um, is one that, that you know it's it's financial largely, right? Um, and so, and I don't want to get crude and talk about like money, but like that that's a challenge. It's so one that has to be surmounted. Yeah. So, um, how do you surmount that particular yeah. challenge? Absolutely, I think. I'll say one thing we had going for us was it's Christmas and, uh, you know, people's hearts and sometimes wallets will open when it comes to that particular holiday and time of the year. Um, but yeah, we, we did have to go through a formal fundraising process um, that Katie and I, you know, led. Um, and that meant, you know, talking to people, writing a business plan, what can we expect in terms of, and not to get crude, um, you know, r- returns. Um, so it, it's, it's not as easy as you know just picking up the phone and asking people for an investment. Uh, we really had to draft up, you know, what's the landscape? What's the landscape post COVID? How are other people doing? Um, what what is this business? What what is the machine that drives theater? You know, what are the levers? What are the marketing things you have to have in place? Um, so it's just a it's a it's a formal business plan, and um and and, and pitching uh, in terms of the fundraising process, much like you know people in Silicon Valley might. Um, go through the same kind of process, mm-hmm. and it really it it can be difficult to to change interchange those hats because yeah. you put your creative brain on, you spend all day writing, and and you write to your heart's content, and then you end up with a number that happens in a spa that you can't afford. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> so it's it's hard to not have that sort of big bad producer saying you can't do that. Yeah. We have to police ourselves and go, yeah. we can't do that. Yeah. Um, so it it's hard. You have to have a lot of uh, self-control and you really have to always play the game of what's the cost versus what's the gain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what does it do for the storytelling? What does it give to the audience? Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's a balance for sure. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, it's hard because you want to look at theater like it's only this beautiful, creative, artistic, uh, world, mm-hmm. but there is this outer shell of, uh, of a business world. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a totally different mindset it's a totally different set of skills yeah. um, that that I think is difficult, uh, especially to do alone. Um, but it's difficult because you know you've either gone to business school or you've gone to theater school, mm-hmm. and you might not necessarily have all of those tools within your arsenal to be able to tackle those things yourself. And if you don't, then you run into uh, where well, you pay someone to do it, and then and yeah. then it just sort of balloons from there. So something yeah. that um, that we have found really beneficial is that within our team, within ourselves, we have these sort of extraneous skills mm-hmm. that uh, that other teams may need to pay for. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt has a background in digital marketing, mm-hmm. so he acts as our digital marketing manager. Mm-hmm. So something that is definitely instrumental in a new show, getting it, you know, to market and, and yeah. getting it on social media and, uh, you know, really getting it in, into people's uh, homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, having to pay that person uh, a separate wage or having to explain your concept to someone who might not get yeah. all the nuances of it. It's been really beneficial for us that, that that's Matt at the helm of that. Yeah. And I would say, you know, um, 50% of your time should be devoted um, to marketing. Um, and I, and I, I don't mean to, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that our marketing team has been working five months now. They mm-hmm. started in July. Started in July for a show in December, um, and you know our, our our designers have been working maybe you know a month or two now, and the cast will start when we start rehearsals. Yeah, um, just just to kind of you know illustrate the time and effort that goes towards you know the business side of the marketing because um, yeah we have to, we have to make sure people know about it and then come. You mentioned the that that conflict between the artist and the business, and I think a lot of times uh, a lot of artists have this uh, uh, visceral reluctance to consider the business aspect. Um, I don't know if you guys came up against that as you were trying getting this process started. What was it like for you to to for the artist to come head to head with the need for business knowledge? Yeah, it's hard. It's humbling. Yeah, it's it's definitely um, it's easier when there's two of you. Uh, Very rarely do we both find ourselves in the same uh, exact headspace. Mm -hmm. And so we are able to have um, conversation and and discuss sort of yeah. how to find a resolution. We we both went to you know our, our post secondary educations were both in the arts. Like I went to school for piano, you went to Sheridan music theater. Mm-hmm. So that's where our journey started. 
<laughs> so we've, we've learned the business side of things along the way. And yeah, there has been, I wouldn't call it a, you know, I wouldn't call it a conflict within us, but I think it's more of an appreciation for the business engine that runs theater. Yeah. Um, We've both been entrepreneurial outside of our sort of creative lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that has really helped uh, in terms of, you know, business plan, bottom lines, how do you spend your money? Um, how do you run, you know, either your own yeah. team or yourself and, and how to collaborate. And yeah. so that's been really instrumental for us, uh, things that have happened in our lives outside of theater that have now kind of really helped in the process. Mm-hmm. For but, sure. but just go back to the artistic to make sure we're not just saying, no, it's all business. I would say also, you know, I think we're, what's a huge benefit of wearing both hats is that I think we feel very confident about the product. Mm-hmm. Um, the show, um, and you know, without feeling excited about the show and, and and really eager to have people see and experience it, I think that makes you know the work on the producer, the business side, all that much more easier and also enjoyable. The same way you might enjoy uh, the artistic side, so it kind of dovetails. Now. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's much easier to uh, to to devote a lot of what can be tedious work uh, to something that you're really excited about. <laughs> And we we made sure when we wrote it that we were writing without expectation and without guardrails mm-hmm. and uh, really looking at just the artistic merit, merit of the piece and, you know, without thinking uh, how many people and what's the budget and what are those things and really just writing the story for the story mm-hmm. and then reapproaching it in a way that goes, well, do we need to come back to the spa? Mm-hmm. Do we need uh, this secondary sort of B or C storyline um, can those characters be folded in and become more than one person? Mm-hmm. And so the initial sort of process was strictly creative without mm-hmm. trying to look at it from a producer's point of view at all. And then coming back and going, what can we adjust without changing the the core of the piece? Mm-hmm. And anytime it did, then that's where we like, you know, that's where we stop mm-hmm. um, without sacrificing anything inside of of sort of that initial artistic writing mm-hmm. um that's that sort of boundary that that we just don't cross <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah now one of the things that i'd love to talk to uh, uh artists about is 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 what got them started i love theater origin stories so i love hearing how people uh got into this business uh, uh kate you you mentioned katie you mentioned uh, uh some christmas shows and things like that in the past but what for each of you, what started your theater experience and what made you continue it? Yeah, I think uh, my earliest theater experience, uh, again, was movie musicals, not on stage, but my grandparents had the entire Shirley Temple collection. And that was the only thing they had. Uh, And so I was determined to grow up to be six-year-old Shirley Temple. Like I thought that was the goal. Um, and so that really was what inspired me as a child to think like, I can perform, I can do that. Shirley Temple can do that. Annie can do that. Um, so I really did get, uh, into theater through those movies when I was really little and then just, you know, entertaining my mom's Tupperware party in a clown wig singing, the sun will come out tomorrow. She got the hint that maybe I wanted to be in theater and, and, uh, my mom's a piano teacher. She's also very musical. So my childhood uh, was spent doing theater with my mom. And and she would, you know, she would accompany me in all my music things, but she would also be on stage with me in certain shows. And so it was really fostered in, in our house uh, to be creative. My brother plays violin. Um, it was just a very musical, uh, safe, creative space. And uh, so it was always sort of, um, you know, it was always allowed to be. There was never a, you know, artists will never make money. And there was never Mm -hmm. that pressure of uh, get a real job. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that was really supportive and helped continue my journey. But I would say what really got me into new works and, and, and working on new musicals, while that foundation of loving theater and being involved in community theater all through my childhood uh, really happened at Sheridan. In my final year, 
there was the main stage productions and the G basement productions. So it was one of the first years of the Canadian Music Theatre Project. And the main stage was going to be Chicago. And I had my heart set on Chicago. That's how I wanted to spend my final year. And uh, when the list went up and I was in the G basement, I was like, who has ever heard of Come From Away? I don't want to be in that show. Not like just, I did. I wanted to be in a show, but it was just like, Compared to Chicago, which has this whole aura and, and you know, existence around it, something that nobody's ever heard of. And so I was pessimistic for sure. And, you know, it was my last year and it was like, okay, I'll, you know, go into the basement. And it completely changed the trajectory of my career. It was the most uh, magical experience to be in a room where things change all the time, where characters don't have... You know, I can't go on YouTube and see the 10 best uh, Val McKellys. Uh, this doesn't exist yet. And so it was really um, just an incredible organic experience that um, that began in that in that basement and come from away. And in Theory of Relativity, which was another Canadian music theater project I did in my final year. And and like, you know, as cliche as it is, really amazing things can happen in the basement, you know? Ooh, that's good. <laughs> that just come to you? Yeah. That was really wow. good. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> I'll say my musical origin uh, is interesting. I was that kid who did not want to practice the piano. <laughs> I was that kind of, I call myself a brat. I think I can do that now with some humility <laughs> behind me. But my, my parents, God bless them, they, they made sure, you know, my brother and I, we, we took music lessons and we were consistent with it. Um, and it wasn't until um, I was in high school and I remember, you know, grade nine music, we watched uh, the Hairspray movie uh, with John Travolta. Um, and I was just, I was hooked. I couldn't believe it was something that hooked me so much. And just the, the, the layering of, you know, the story, the Hairspray is a fun show. The story and the songs, everything just kind of coming together, that, that choreography of all those elements coming together, just set something off in me. And then that was it. Um, I, I was hooked from there, you know, dove into Wicked and fell in love with the music of Stephen Sondheim. And then, you know, decided, you know, devote my life to music, went and studied music and that was it. And how did your, because some people go to music, you know, they do music and they'll like join an orchestra or they will, um, you know, they'll join a band or something like that. Um, but musical theater uh, for a musician tends to be a very uh, anonymous experience. Uh, is yes. that what, were you drawn to the anonymous experience of being a musician or, or how did you decide that, or how did you find that, that being in like bands for musicals was a uh, part of your career, career trajectory? Well, yeah. Awesome. Awesome question. I really just appreciate the art form and the way that musical theater music shifted, changed character moment to moment in a way that was different than um, pop music did, but in a way that was a little bit more explicit on the surface than orchestral, you know, what we call classical music did. You know, I was really lucky. I went to Mohawk College and did my diploma of music there. But while I was there, I was kind of moonlighting as the music director over at McMaster University's production. It was a student production. I was somehow I was able to do a student production at another university at the time of Fiddler on the Roof. And that was my very first show I'd ever music directed. And yeah, that just like, you know, took took my love of the art form tenfold. You know, I had a, a band of I think maybe 15 people. Um, I, thought, I don't know if I'll ever get that again nowadays. <laughs> Bands are shrinking. Um, but that that was really it for me. And I, I really learned to love also, you know, working in bands, working in pit bands, orchestras, whatever you want to call them. Just it's the collaborative nature of it all, you know. Very often, music directors appear as though they they know everything up there with their baton and they're the the arbiter of what is true. But nine times out of ten, they're, they're learning from the musicians in front of them too, who have a better understanding of you know um, bowing or you know w w what a brass passage might be able to be articulated as. So I just I love the collaborative nature of, of bands for sure. But like I said before, music theater is the collaborative art form. Mm -hmm. Thank you both. Um, yeah. Now, as I, I believe you, you haven't started rehearsals yet. Um, Sunday. Sunday. Oh, so Sunday. like, like as we record this, you are about to start rehearsals. Um, 
Um, But as you know, you've done work, you've done workshops, you've done a whole lot of there's a whole lot that goes into a musical like this. Um, But as you approach this production and this this final version, um, what are you most looking forward to? I think um, repeating myself, but it's, it's the audience. I really believe they are the final collaborator. And, you know, we've done work in terms of what we think the songs should be, what the lighting cues, you know, will be. But it's not really until they're in there that we really know what the big moments are, what the big laughs are, or what might still be missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say the same. I, I know, um, you know, from my own experience, how magical being, uh, having an experience as a gift, uh, especially in live theater, what what that means and and sort of how that has imprinted on on my experience as an artist who you know many moons ago was a child in an audience very similar to that Mm -hmm. uh and so to just see that sort of to see the show land on families it is a multi-generational show we have you know adult relationships we have teenage relationships we have you know eight-year-old relationships and how they all sort of um intersect with each other and and that none is really, you know, invalid mm-hmm. and that there's experiences across the board. And I think seeing uh, multi-generational families absorbing the show and and letting the show hit them in different ways and and creating this sort of bonding experience as, as a unit, mm-hmm. um, I'm excited for that, for sure. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. Uh, well, Matt, Katie, thank you so much for joining me. I can't wait to see this show. Um, and uh, I, I, I hope that everybody else who might be listening or watching uh, also uh, can't wait to see it. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. We had such a blast. Thank you for having us. We can't wait to see you there. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember... If you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy.